Hi, I'm David Crow, and this is episode 246 of The Infectious Myth. Email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com. That's Crow with an E. Join the discussion and like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on prn.fm, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or other programs. You can listen to any of the last five episodes over the phone by dialing the U.S. number 701-719-0990 and following the instructions. prn.fm has voicemail, 862-800-6805. Leave a message or a question for the show. Leave your name and indicate that it's for the infectious myth. If you dial either of these numbers, long-distance charges may apply. I don't know that you're a listener until I hear from you, so send me a message letting me know how you stay in touch with the show and what you like about it. If you include your mailing address, as some do, I'll send you a little thank you gift, one of the bookmarks I make by hands using my own photographs. I do really love to hear from you, so don't be shy. You can make a one-time donation to the expenses of the show via PayPal using the email david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com or commit to monthly donations at patreon.com or liberapay.com where we are, Infectious Myth, one word. We appreciate all our listeners, but if you want this show to continue to grow and improve, consider paying a small amount for the information that you are gleaning, for the support you get for some of your non-mainstream ideas and the challenges you get to others. You're probably listening to or watching other independent media, and if you're not contributing financially, you should be. Independent media shouldn't have to sell out to corporations to survive. So a small donation from you on a regular basis to the infectious myth or other media you appreciate is really, really important. Your donation is important, your individual donation. The free media, on the other hand, are free for a reason. They're either renting your eyeballs or they're pushing advertising at you or both. They're selling you. If you would like me to speak at a meeting of an organization you're a member of on any topic you think I have an interesting and worthwhile opinion on, I'd be happy to discuss this with you. I appreciate you commenting and suggesting guests. I appreciate your financial support as well. Thanks for listening and for recommending this show to your friends. And now I don't have anybody with me, but I will be talking about my latest analysis of the coronavirus panic. The coronavirus panic evokes feelings of hopelessness in me, not because I think the virus will ravage the world, but because this is like a military operation based on lies, and hardly anybody wants to question the assumptions that are driving the attack. It may be seen by some as a war of science against an invisible and implacable enemy, but there is no science at a time of panic. Doctors are overwhelmed and make decisions based on their gut feel and their own panic. And the information that will be gathered is largely useless, as there is nothing even approaching a clinical trial that can occur under these circumstances. Instead, the warriors, tired and scarred, will write a history that casts them as heroes, their invisible foe now defeated. And I feel helpless getting people to consider the lack of science and simple logic. But you are listening so maybe I feel a little bit more optimistic. And if you want to read this in more detail, go to theinfectiousmyth.com slash book, lowercase, coronavirus panic, capital C, capital P, dot PDF. And I would really appreciate your feedback.
The coronavirus scare emanated from Wuhan, China in December of 2019. It's an epidemic of testing. There's no proof that a virus is being detected by the test, and there is absolutely no concern about whether there are a significant number of false positives. What is being published in medical journals is not science. Every paper has the goal of enhancing the panic by interpreting the data only in ways that benefit the viral theory, even when the data is confusing or contradictory. In other words, the medical papers are propaganda. It is also an epidemic by definition. The definition which assumes perfection from the test does not have the safety valve that the definition of SARS did. Thus, the scare can go on until public health officials change the definition or realize that the test is not reliable. What I learned from studying SARS extensively, the previous big coronavirus scare after the 2003 epidemic, was that nobody proved that a coronavirus existed let alone was pathogenic. There was evidence against transmission, and soon after, admissions blaming the extreme treatments that patients were subjected to, the nucleoside analog and antiviral drug ribavirin, high-dose corticosteroids, invasive respiratory assistance, and sometimes oseltamivir, Tamiflu. This is documented in my draft book chapter, mostly complete, that you can find here, theinfectiousmyths.com slash book slash SARS.pdf, and SARS is all in uppercase. Scientists are detecting novel RNA in multiple patients with pneumonia-like conditions and are assuming that the detection of RNA, which is believed to be wrapped in proteins to form an RNA virus, as coronaviruses are believed to be, is equivalent to isolation of the virus. It is not, and one of the groups of scientists was honest enough to admit this, we did not perform tests for detecting infectious virus in blood. But despite this ad admission, earlier in the paper, they repeatedly referred to the 41 cases out of 59 that were similar, that tested positive for this RNA as 41 patients confirmed to be infected with 2019 novel coronavirus. Another paper quietly admitted that our study does not fulfill Cox postulates. Cox postulates, first stated by the great German bacteriologist Robert Koch in the late 1800s, can simply be stated as, one, purify the pathogen, e.g. the virus, from many cases with a particular illness. Two, expose susceptible an animals, for ethical reasons, obviously not humans, to the pathogen. Three, verify that the same illness is produced. And some add that you should also re-purify the pathogen just to make sure that it really is creating the illness. If you find no virus in the sick animals, then maybe something else caused the illness and not the virus. Famous virologist Thomas Rivers stated in a 1936 speech, it's obvious that Cox postulates have not been satisfied in viral diseases. That was a long time ago, but the same problem still continues. None of the papers referenced in this article have even attempted to purify the virus. And the word isolation has been so debased by virologists, it means nothing. In some cases, adding impure materials to a cell culture and seeing cell death is isolation. And often a sample, such as nasal secretions, is referred to as an isolate, when nothing has been isolated. Isolation comes from the Latin word still in use in Italian, isola, which means island, something that's separate from the rest of the world. One reference did publish electron micrographs, and I emphasize that if you go to the written version of this, this talk, 
all the references are present, and I think in every case there's a link to a URL where you can download the paper. But it can clearly be seen in the lesser magnified photo that the particles believed to be coronavirus are not purified, as the quantity of material that is cellular is much greater. The paper also notes that the photos are from human airway epithelial cells. In other words, they cut thin slices of cells, put them under an electron microscope, and they saw small particles, and they said, aha, those are the viruses. Also consider that the photo included in the article would certainly be the best photo. In other words, the one with the greatest number of particles or the particles that look the most similar. Lab technicians may be encouraged to spend hours to look around to find the most photogenic image, the one that most looks like pure virus. There's no way to tell that the RNA being used in the new coronavirus PCR test is found in those particles seen under the electron micrograph. There is no connection between the test and the particles and no proof that the particles are viral. A similar situation was revealed in March 1997 concerning HIV, when two papers published in the same issue of the journal Virology revealed that the vast majority of what had previously been called pure HIV was impurities that were clearly not HIV, and that the mixture in, in also included microvesicles that look very similar to HIV under an electron microscope, but are of cellular origin. And what I mean by vast majority is over 90%. Infectious diseases always have a definition, but they are usually not publicized too widely because then they would be open to ridicule. They often have something like a suspect case category based on symptoms and exposure, and a confirmed category that adds some kind of testing. Uh, one of the definitions, which was based on the WHO definitions for the coronavirus diseases SARS and MERS, which is the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, uh, required all four of the following criteria. One, fever with or without recorded temperature. There's no universal definition of fever, so this may be just the opinion of a physician or a nurse, or even somebody asking the patient if they feel hot. With SARS, a fever was defined as 38 degrees Celsius, even though normal body temperature is 37, the famous 98.6 Fahrenheit, although now people think that that's not entirely accurate. Secondly, radiographic evidence of pneumonia. This can occur without illness, as was seen in one 10-year-old boy that I'll get to later who had no clinical symptoms. He was diagnosed with pneumonia despite no symptoms. Thirdly, lower normal white cell count or low lymphocyte count. And you need to listen to this carefully. Low or normal white blood cell count. This is not really a criterion, as every healthy person who has a normal white blood cell count is included. Only people with high white blood cell counts, e.g. some cancer patients, would be excluded. And then the fourth part of the definition would be one of the following three. No reduction in symptoms after antimicrobial treatment for three days. This indicates it's a so-called viral pneumonia, one that does not resolve with antibiotics. Secondly, an epidemiological link to the Huanan seafood wholesale market in Wuhan, and thirdly, contact with other patients with similar symptoms. These parts of the definition create the illusion that it's infectious because most people will have a link to somebody else because that's an easy way to get a, uh, uh, to meet the suspect case definition. A little bit later, the last three-part category was changed to one of the following, 
travel history to Wuhan, or direct contact with patients from Wuhan who had fever or respiratory symptoms within 14 days before illness onset. It's not clear whether the no reduction in symptoms after antimicrobial treatment for three days criterion was still included. I wrote to the authors, I've written to several of the authors, but only once got a reply. I don't know if they're busy or they just don't want to talk to me. If not, this change in definition could help the Chinese extricate themselves from this mess, as everyone diagnosed would be in isolation, and therefore satisfying this criterion would be next to impossible. If they are lucky, those diagnosed will survive the medications, isolation, and other treatments, and after two weeks will be declared cured, and gradually the panic will recede. The big problem is that in contrast to the definition for SARS, a confirmed case initially did not require the criteria for a suspect case to be met. A confirmed case simply required a positive RNA test without any symptoms or possibility of contact with previous cases, illustrating total faith in the PCR technology used in the test. The World Health Organization definition has the same flaw. It was the fact that the SARS definition required both a reasonable possibility of contact with a previous case and symptoms that allowed the epidemic to burn out. Once everyone was quarantined, new cases of SARS were highly unlikely, testing stopped, and doctors could declare victory. But the Chinese eventually woke up, uh, they were criticized a little bit for this, and around February 16th, they required confirmed cases to meet the requirements for a suspect case, as well as a positive test. This is much more like the definition of SARS. They may have put this new definition into practice earlier because after a massive addition of almost 16,000 confirmed cases on February 12th, the number fell dramatically each day and by February 18th was under 500 cases and continued to stay low. But other countries apparently did not learn. Korea, Japan, and Italy, and I think some other countries, have started doing tests on people with no epidemiological link, encouraging people with the vague symptoms that are part of the definition to go to the hospital to get checked and obviously following up with asymptomatic people with a connection to anybody who tests positive. Consequently, in mid to late February, cases in those countries started to skyrocket. So is COVID-19, or whatever people want to use for this new disease, a distinct new disease? Clearly not. There are no distinctive symptoms for start. <clears throat> In one study of 41 early cases, the only symptoms found in more than half were fever, 98%, and cough, 76%. 98% had CT scan imaging showing, both, showing problems in both lungs, although it's possible to have shadowing on a CT scan without symptoms. The high percentage of cases with fever and shadowing in both lungs is probably an artifact of the disease, disease definition. Fever and radiographic evidence of pneumonia are two of the diagnostic criteria for a probable case. So if you showed up at a hospital in Wuhan or later the rest of China or later in South Korea or Japan or Italy, you would be considered a probable case based on these symptoms. The low rate of people testing positive on the coronavirus testing is further evidence that there are no obvious symptoms. If there were recognizable symptoms, doctors would have a better than 4% chance of guessing who has the virus. Should be up around 75 or 80%. While some of these people may have been tested without symptoms because they were on a flight or cruise, countries outside China are encouraging people with the vague symptoms to check into a hospital, so increasingly people have the symptoms of the flu or pneumonia, and they're still testing negative in high numbers. For example, as of February 27th, 
Korea had found 1,766 positive cases out of 37,084. That's 4.8%. In Washington State, where they appear to be reluctant to test anyone, only 1 out of 27 uh, who were tested by February 24th had tested positive, which is 3.7%, not that different. Perhaps if they had tested all 438 who were by then under quarantine in Washington State alone, the epidemic would have exploded from 1 to about 18 cases, 4% of 438. Clearly, in neither location can doctors recognize cases clinically. Assuming for a moment the existence of a new coronavirus, what would a coronavirus test tell us at this stage? Or what does it not tell us? Without purification and exposing animals to viral particles, we do not know if the virus is pathogenic, disease-causing. It could be an opportunistic infection that invades unhealthy people with weakened immune systems but doesn't cause any harm, or a passenger virus is carried along by risky behavior such as eating an animal carrier of a virus but also doesn't cause any harm. We don't know the false positive rate of the test without widespread testing of healthy people far from places where people are being diagnosed with this possible new disease. If the test was 99% accurate in a city of over 10 million like Wuhan, there would be about 100,000 false positives, that's 1% of the population. It's easy to generate a false epidemic if you just keep testing like this. And it's worse if you restrict the test to people with symptoms because then the flaws in the test will not be revealed for much longer, and there may be a higher rate of false positives amongst people who have respiratory illnesses. If someone is sick, there's no proof that any or all of their symptoms are due to the virus, even if it is present. Some people may be immune, some may have symptoms, some symptoms caused by the virus, but others caused by the drugs they are given, by pre-existing health conditions, by other bacteria and viruses, and so on. We don't know if the people who test negative are infected or not, especially when they show up with similar symptoms. For example, in one paper, out of 59 patients, only 41 tested positive, but clearly the researchers were not sure whether the remaining 18 were uninfected or not because they had the same types of symptoms. If they truly are not infected, they lend weight to the coronavirus not being the cause of the illness, as the symptoms were the same. Maybe all 59 had something different. 41 had the coronavirus or the coronavirus RNA, whether it's viral or not, uh, but it wasn't actually causing their illness. Testing at such an early stage of knowledge is incredibly dangerous. It spreads panic. It can put people on dangerous medications. Other circumstances of their treatment can be physically and psychologically damaging, such as intubation and isolation, and even seeing all the doctors and nurses in special suits emphasizes how deathly sick you are. False negative test results are considered to be a big problem. According to an article in the South China Morning Post, the major newspaper in Hong Kong, Li Yan, head of the Diagnostic Center at the People's Hospital of Wuhan University, noted on Chinese state TV, CCTV, that because of the multi-step process, an error at any stage in testing could result in an incorrect outcome. And Wang Chen, president of the Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences, also on CCTV, said that the accuracy is only 30 to 50 percent. However, what Wang Chen clearly really means is that the test 
can only ever be falsely negative and can never be falsely positive. In a family cluster paper that I'll keep coming back to, I've already mentioned it a couple of times, um, this bias towards interpreting test results as infected and, and not as false positives is clear. As most patients had more negative tests than positive tests, but they were considered positive anyway. Patient 1 only had 3 out of 11 positive, 27%. Patient 2, 5 out of 11, a little bit less than half. Patient 3 had all 18 negative, but was considered infected anyway. Patient 4 had only 4 out of 14 positive, 5 had 4 out of 17. And patient 7, who was the only one who didn't go to Wuhan, had a slight majority positive, 64%. The only way to decide logically and scientifically what the correct answer is, whether these people are infected or not, is to have a gold standard for presence of the virus, which can only be purification and characterization. And by characterization, I mean once you have pure material, breaking it down into proteins and RNA, and from that, you can obtain the materials that you need in order to produce a test. Since purification has never been accomplished, doctors get to make decisions on the fly, almost always leaning towards treating patients as infected. The major attempt to define the false positive rate was in a paper describing a new test methodology, but it has a built-in conflict of interest. Clearly, if the false positive rate was high, the author's stated aim to, quote, develop and deploy robust diagnostic methodology for use in public health laboratory se settings would have failed. They did, however, do more than most, so give them credit for that. They took 297 samples of nasal and throat secretions from biobanks and tested them, only finding weak initial reactivity in four samples, which upon retesting disappeared. So all 297 were declared negative. The problem with this kind of testing, uh, this kind of analysis, is that biobank samples may not have been obtained in the same way as samples from live people in an epidemic panic. The sampling was also not blinded, something that is necessary to eliminate the possibility of unconscious bias, a real problem in medicine. The people doing the test might have known that they were running a bunch of control samples and that it would be good if they all turned out to be negative. Uh, so if there were some um, gray areas, they might have uh, handled them differently than if they hadn't known what the samples were for. Furthermore, many samples in people believed to be infected are negative, and multiple samples are tested. As I described above, up to 18 samples in the uh, family cluster. So in the sample of 297, they only took one test for all 297, yet in the family cluster, they took 10 to 18 samples. So you might need to divide the 297 by 3 or 4 or 10 um, to see what it actually reflects in, in reality. So you can't say that the false positive rate is lower than 1 out of 300. It might be much higher than that. And even if this test did have a false positive rate that was very low, it's not clear that this particular test was even yet in use, and the false positive rate cannot be extrapolated to any other test design. Every test will need to have its own false positive analysis. And, I think I mentioned this before, even a small false positive rate is critically important. A 99% accurate test would produce 100,000 false positives in a city of 10 million like Wuhan, 
And if the number of positives in sampling is around 4%, which it appears to be from early statistics, 3 to 5%, say, then one out of three to five positives would be false, could be false. Okay, so there's false negatives and false positives, but there's also some other interesting uh, anomalies. What about positive, then negative, and then positive again? What does that mean? Some people have fully recovered from illness, blamed on the coronavirus, started to test negative, and then tested positive again. According to a news report, Patients in China are not considered cured until they no longer have symptoms, have clear lungs on an X-ray or CT scan, and have two negative coronavirus tests. Despite this, the article goes on to say that 14% of discharged patients later tested positive again, but had no more symptoms. This is very difficult to explain if the test is for a virus. Much easier to explain if the RNA that the test is looking for is not viral in origin. Some other anomalies in the same kind of <coughs> ilk. On January 31st, it was reported that a wo woman returning to Canada from China tested negative while mildly ill after arriving in Canada, but late, later tested positive. Doctors said, well, she didn't have enough virus when she was mildly ill, but the PCR test is extremely sensitive. February 11th, a sick woman in Wuhan tested negative on her first test. This was after days of illness, but positive on a later test. February 16th, an 83-year-old American woman was screened as disease-free after leaving a cruise ship, but tested positive twice after arrival in Malaysia. Ironically, her husband had pneumonia, but tested negative. Nobody on the ship was sick while they were on the ship, nor had traveled to mainland China recently. On March 1st, Newsweek reported that an American man tested negative upon return from Wuhan, China, without any symptoms. But later, he was found to be weakly positive and was returned to quarantine. This also gives insight into the idea that there is positive and negative. There are actually, there is a continuum of results, and there's an arbitrary decision about what's positive or negative, and there may be a gray area in between, which is subject to some kind of interpretation. There's lots of evidence that the virus is not transmissible as was originally implied. Uh, for example, 66% of early patients had direct exposure to the Huanan seafood market. But later analysis of patients between January 1st and, and, 20, and 20th <coughs> showed that only 49% did. And then a larger survey, including all 425 of the first cases in China, showed that 72% had no exposure to, to either the market or another person with respiratory symptoms, which is even more important. So you could say, well, people weren't connected to the market because they were getting it from other people. But in this case, 72% had no documented exposure to somebody else with respiratory symptoms. The symptom onset date of the first patient was December 1st, 2019. But none of, his members none of his family members developed fever or any respiratory symptoms, and no epidemiological link was found between him and later cases. And in the family cluster I've mentioned, it said that none of the family members had contacts with Wuhan markets or animals, no history of contact with animals in the past, no visits to markets, including the Huanan market, and they did not eat wild meat in restaurants. 
So let's talk about this family. The, um, a, a paper was written about what I will call the Shenzhen family cluster to show how the virus could be easily transmitted within a family. This family traveled from Shenzhen, which is near Hong Kong, to Wuhan in December, and then back again only about a week later. Two grandparents referred to as patients one, one and two, the daughter and the son-in-law, patients three and four, and a 10-year-old grandson and seven-year-old granddaughter, patients five and six, constituted the family. They flew to Wuhan on December 29th, 2019. On the first day, the grandmother and her daughter, patients one and three, visited a baby boy with pneumonia known as Relative One in a hospital in Wuhan. The hospital is not named, but the implication is that this child had this new disease. Outside of this, they mingled with four other local relatives, of which two had also spent extensive time in the hospital with the baby boy. Notably, the infant's symptoms resolved one or two days after the visit, and he returned home or while the Shenzhen family was still there. On day four of the visit, which was January 1st, the son-in-law, who had not gone to the hospital, got sick. On this basis, they declared that the coronavirus had a very short incubation time and that people were almost immediately infectious. There's no evidence for this, except nothing else can support their hypothesis that the hospitalized baby had this new coronavirus, infected either or both of patients one and three, and one of which then infected the son-in-law, all in four days. Then, like dominoes, the other visitors got sick. The daughter one day after her husband, January 2nd, the grandmother the next day, and then the grandfather, and followed by relatives two, three, four, and five, the other four relatives that the Shenzhen family was visiting in Wuhan. The family appeared to have a history of being frequently ill. In this case, symptoms were mostly fever, cough, and weakness. On January 4th, the whole family returned to Shenzhen. Note that the grandchildren, patients 5 and 6, had no symptoms of any kind during their time in Wuhan or after returning home. On January 9th, the grandparents and their daughter attended a clinic in Shenzhen, and the next day the grandparents visited the big hospital, the University of Hong Kong Shenzhen Hospital, for tests. The daughter followed one day later on January 10th. The grandparents had significant pre-existing health conditions, such as one of them having been treated for brain cancer, the grandmother, and both had hypertension. In Wuhan, they had both suffered from fever, dry cough, and weakness, and later were found to have various lab abnormalities. No question that they were genuinely sick. Concern that they were infected with the new coronavirus is probably the reason why the rest of the family were brought in over the next few days for testing. The daughter and the son-in-law were still sick with diarrhea, congestion, sore throat, and chest pain, but by then had a normal body temperature even lower than 37. They did have some lung opacities on a CT scan, so were diagnosed with pneumonia despite the normal temperature. The grandson had been a bad boy, that's patient 5, and had refused to wear a mask in Wuhan, so the parents insisted he get a CT scan despite the absence of symptoms. He also had lung opacities, to everybody's surprise, and so was also diagnosed with pneumonia, even though he was completely healthy. The granddaughter, by contrast, had been a good girl. That was patient six, and, and she had worn a mask. And so nobody was surprised that she was not only asymptomatic, but also did not have lung abnormalities. All six patients were tested using the new RNA test. 
Nobody was surprised that the grandparents tested positive on nose and serum samples. The son-in-law tested positive on nose and throat, but the daughter, patient three, and as I mentioned before, did 18 tests, more than anybody else, and was negative on every one. But the authors concluded, showing a shocking level of bias, she was still regarded as an infected case because she was strongly epidemiologically linked to the Wuhan hospital exposure, the baby boy, and radiologically showing multifocal ground glass lung opacities. Another indication of bias was the omission of test results for patient six, even though it says in the text that they were done, who also tested similarly negative every time, but based on only four samples according to personal correspondence from the authors. In this case, the bias was clearly to classify her as uninfected. They only did four samples, for example. They didn't bother to include her data in the table of everybody else. The bad grandson tested positive on nose, throat, and sputum samples, despite no illness. Additionally, there was a relative who did not travel to Wuhan, referred to as patient seven, who got sick with back pain and weakness four days after everyone returned to Shenzhen, and when she was tested, she was also positive for RNA. Several of the relatives who lived in Wuhan also got sick afterwards, but no coronavirus test information was provided in the paper. No consideration was given to other causes for illness, such as exposure to food contaminated by chemicals, food that was in, prepared in anticipation of their visit that was left out unrefrigerated for too long or left in unsanitary conditions. The purpose of this paper appears to have been to prove that the coronavirus is infectious, not to try to disprove it, which is what good scientists should do. Note that the relatives visited each other a lot over the few days. That was indeed the purpose of the trip, and one can guess that they ate more than usual, ate richer and more exotic foods, but no exotic animals, and perhaps drank more than usual, but none of this was investigated. Only the infectious theory was investigated. Another paper that tries to establish infectivity attempts to connect the illness of some Germans, one of whom met with a Chinese woman, who afterwards was diagnosed positive on the RNA test. The sequence of events starts between January 20th and 22nd, when a woman from Shanghai and a local German were in meetings together. Both were healthy at the time. The woman flew back to China on January 22nd and started to feel sick on the flight home. The German also got sick, sore throat, chills, muscle pain, fever, cough, late on the 24th and did not return to work until the 27th. By coincidence, this was the same day that the Shanghai woman informed the German company that she had been sick and had tested positive for coronavirus RNA. By this time, the German man had recovered without any special medicines or interventions, but he tested positive and so did three other colleagues who had contact with him, or the Shanghai woman, or both. It's logical that everyone who had any contact with them was tested, and likely no employees who did not have contact were tested. The paper did not say how many tested negative and whether any of those testing negative had similar symptoms, such as fever, cough, sore throat, chills. The article claims that all four Germans had symptoms starting on the 24th, 26th, or 27th, but what those symptoms were is not detailed for the three not in the meeting with the Chinese woman. The article does note that so far, none of the four confirmed patients show signs of severe clinical illness. If the purpose of the paper was to support the idea that this illness is transmissible, which it obviously was, it's important to accept the four positive tests on Germans as true positives, despite the fact that none of them had severe clinical illness. 
This, however, calls into question the severity of the illness and why heroic and dangerous medical measures are needed. Because the Germans did not find out about their positive RNA test until after their period of symptoms, they probably only had to suffer quarantine and not antiviral drugs, steroids, or invasive respiratory assistance, which might have happened if they'd shown up at an emergency department with symptoms and not been diagnosed with the 2019 coronavirus at the same time. An alternative explanation is that the coronavirus might be deadly, but that, that these four Germans represent four false positive tests. If this is the case, the usefulness of the test must be questioned. Note that the fact that all the people with positive tests and symptoms had contact with each other is not surprising if testing was limited to people who had contact with each other. It's just a tautology. Continuing on the topic of transmission, there are numerous new newspaper articles that have noted cases with no known contact with another case or any travel to an endemic region, notably Wuhan. Numerous newspaper articles have noted cases outside China where individual cases were still newsworthy that had no known contact with another case or travel to an endemic region, notably Wuhan or Hubei province. And this is obviously not an exclusive list. And the dates that I'm going to read are from the newspaper articles. The events have presumably occurred, in most cases, before this date. February, February 2nd, it was reported that an 80-year-old Hong Kong man tested positive after hospital admission due to a fever. But his only recent trip to mainland China was a brief visit to Shenzhen, just outside Hong Kong, and over 1,000 kilometers from Wuhan by car. He had no contact with other cases, markets with live animals, or wild animals. On February 13th, it was reported that a Japanese woman in her 80s tested positive after death. Her son-in-law, a taxi driver, also tested positive. He had not traveled to the affected parts of China and denied having carried any foreign customers in the two weeks before testing positive. On February 16th, an 82-year-old man in Seoul, Korea, with no record of overseas travel or contact with other positive testing people, was found. February 17th, three men in Aichi, Chiba, and Hokkaido prefectures in Japan have no infection routes identified. February 18th, a 61-year-old woman described as a super spreader was the first person diagnosed in her highly populated region of southern South Korea with no known contacts or travel to explain her case. <coughs> she was blamed for spreading the infection to 37 other people, but this may just be an artifact of the size of the church. She had 1,160 so-called contacts, presumably mainly members of her congregation. And so the fraction of positive cases among her contacts is 3.3%, which is lower than the rate of positive tests seen overall in South Korea. In other words, it's exactly what you'd expect with somebody who had 1,160 friends or people that she went to church with. February 22nd, two cases in Chiba Prefecture, Japan, uh, had no relationship with each other or any contact with other cases or our relevant travel history. February 22nd, the Director General of the WHO says that cases with no clear epidemiological links, such as travel history to China or contact with a confirmed case, are a concern. I'm not sure why they're a concern. They risk uh, damaging the viral theory of the uh, coronavirus disease. February 24th in Lombardy, northern Italy, none of the early patients had been to China or had contact with another case. February 27th, after a hospital in Vienna, Austria decided to test everyone with compatible symptoms, which is basically pretty much anything, 
A 72-year-old man tested positive. He had no known route of infection, had already been in the hospital 10 days, so it was unlikely he was infected outside of the hospital if it's a short incubation period, and none of his contacts were ill or infected. February 27th, an 88-year-old man in San Marino, which is a little country fully within the borders of Italy, tested positive, but an investigation showed he had not traveled abroad, nor to the so-called red areas of Italy where the other cases had been found, including cases which had no connection with any other case. February 28th, an Oregon resident became the first positive case with no known history of travel to affected countries or contact with infected individuals. First positive case in the United States like this. March 2nd, uh, the newspaper El País reported that at least five positive cases in Torrejón de Ardos near Madrid had not traveled to any country considered a risk and had not had had any contact with any other patients. I also want to point out it's impossible in most cases to prove that someone did have contact with another coronavirus case even if they did travel to Wuhan and did visit the Huanan seafood market. In the best case, it will be possible to show that someone was in the vicinity of someone else who tested positive earlier, but that does not constitute proof that they were exposed to the virus, let alone that it was that person who infected them. In most cases, even if someone was in Wuhan, there will be no evidence that a person was in contact with another victim. Fundamentally, this belief that it is contact that causes positive tests, i.e. an infectious disease, is necessary to preserve the infectious paradigm. Therefore, the slightest evidence of an association between an old case and a new case, such as having been in the same city at the same time, is taken as proof of transmission when it is obviously not. Overall, it seems that test results must be interpreted to preserve the coronavirus infectious theory. No alternative interpretation is allowed. And when there's an inconsistency, it must be ignored or explained away, often invoking imaginary data. As mentioned above in the... the um, familial cluster paper, the daughter, important in the chain of transmission of a, of a family, was interpreted as a false negative after testing negative 18 times. They gave up. They had no more samples to test, I guess. Alternatively, it could have been concluded that this woman did not have the coronavirus, but that would have badly damaged the family transmission story and left open other reasons for the cluster of illnesses and CT scan abnormalities. In other words, if she had the same symptoms as everyone else in the in the family, and it was agreed that they were not caused by the coronavirus in her case, why should it be assumed that the symptoms are, are caused in the other people by the coronavirus? Even if they had the coronavirus, maybe that wasn't causing the disease. Also, in the same paper, the grandson tested positive without any symptoms at all except abnormalities on a CT scan. This allowed them to declare him as ill, but he could have been an asymptomatic case or a false positive. A woman who returned from China to her Canadian university with illness, I've already mentioned this woman, she first tested negative and then positive. This was interpreted as indicating that she had very little virus in her body at the time of the first test and that the test was obviously not sensitive enough. However, PCR, polymerase chain reaction testing, is extraordinarily sensitive. And if she had so little virus, how was it that she had symptoms? An alternative explanation is that she became positive on the test in Canada, perhaps because this virus is actually quite common and didn't cause her illness, or because the test is not for a virus but is measuring RNA created by the human body, perhaps in response to disease conditions. 
The four Germans could be seen as showing that the RNA test produces false positive, or that the illness produced by the virus is often not severe. But it will be interpreted as neither by dogmatic promoters of the coronavirus theory. It simply will not be mentioned now that the main message, the virus is infectious, is accepted. It's not necessary to look at the, the details to see what the details test us. Out of 206 Japanese evacuated from Wuhan, only three tested positive and two were found to have no symptoms. Instead of considering them false positives, they were considered infected and possibly infectious. In Singapore, of six positive cases in one batch of people with some connection to uh, China, the first had a sore throat and cough but no pneumonia, the second and third had undescribed symptoms, presumably minor, and the last three had no symptoms. Treatment. There's a strong correlation between the amount of panic, and there's certainly a lot of that in this case, and the potency of drugs being used. And this can be very dangerous. As a report commissioned by an expert panel of the World Health Organization after SARS was over said, despite an extensive literature reporting on SARS treatments, it was not possible to determine whether treatments benefited patients during the SARS outbreak. Some may have been harmful. Of patients treated with ribavirin, which is an antiviral drug of the class known as nucleoside analogs, which is very dangerous, 36 to 61 percent developed hemolytic anemia, a recognized complication with this drug. That basically means that your blood breaks down. Although it is not possible to rule out the possibility that the virus caused the hemolytic anemia as there was no control group. This il illustrates two things, if I can interject. The first is always go towards blaming the virus for anything that happens, even though it's much more likely to be the drugs. And secondly, it's not science if there's no control group. So really, we don't know what percentage of people were harmed because there was nobody getting a placebo. Uh, continuing, one study noted that over 29% of SARS patients had some degree of liver dysfunction indicated by ALT levels higher than normal. And the number of patients with this complication increased to over 75% after ribavirin treatment. In the Chinese literature, we found 14 reports in which steroids were used. 12 studies were inconclusive, and two showed po possible harm. One study reported diabetes onset associated with methylprednisolone treatment, which is a corticosteroid. Another study, an uncontrolled res retrospective study of 40 SARS patients, reported avascular necrosis and osteoporosis among corticosteroid-treated SARS patients. And, um, they didn't mention this, but in Hong Kong, there were many joint replacements necessary afterwards. And also in Hong Kong, there was a report 50% uh, of patients treated with corticosteroids had ongoing neurological problems uh, following the end of the SARS epidemic. The treatment of what is seen as a new disease is aggressive. I'm not sure it's as aggressive as it was with SARS perhaps due to the greater size of the epidemic putting pressure on blood supply, on drug supplies, perhaps due to a few doctors having memories of what went wrong with SARS. The antiviral ribavirin is not being used, it's not being mentioned as far as I can see, and doctors are maybe more cautious with steroids. In two papers from China, 22% of the patients in one and 19% in the other received them although the dosages are still high, similar to those given to SARS patients. 
A patient documenting 99 confirmed coronavirus patients reported that 76% were receiving antiviral drugs, which were at that time already including the AIDS drugs Lopinavar and Ritonavar, along with Asotamivar, Tamiflu, and Gancyclovir, but does not indicate how many were getting each antiviral, let alone how much and for how long. At the beginning of February, if this year, the Chinese government announced a trial of a new Gilead antiviral drug originally planned for Ebola, remdesivir, which previously, quote, may have helped to alleviate the symptoms of a 35-year-old male diagnosed with a coronavirus infection in the United States. The drug was going to be trialed on 270 people. It's not clear whether there will be a placebo, highly unlikely, or some other comparison group. Maybe they'll compare one antiviral against another. A Chinese chemistry professor, Jiang Shuifeng, warned, no random controlled or blank samples were used in the previous use in a single American man. The effectiveness of remdesivir cannot be determined by a single case. It can take years to fully understand the pharmacological and toxicological side effects of new drugs. Wise words, indeed. A Japanese hospital is testing the anti-influenza medication Avigan favipiravir on one patient. Uh, there's been some mentions of respiratory assistance, which was a big problem with SARS. Those who received the more aggressive uh, respiratory assistance, such as intubation, sticking a tube down your throat, or even a tracheotomy, had a harder time recovering and had more problems afterwards. Uh, only 13% of a group of Chinese patients were given a face mask for extra oxygen, which is the least invasive form of, of ventilation, and only 4% were subject to invasive ventilation. So maybe some people remember what happened with SARS. Apart from having pneumonia and often being subject to potent drugs, many of the patients have other health problems and are therefore much weaker than average. For example, in one uh, survey from China, 51% of the patients had chronic diseases, including cardiovascular and cerebrovascular diseases, endocrine system diseases, digestive system diseases, respiratory system diseases, malignant tumors, and nervous system diseases. They're also older than average. In one study, the average age of the patients was 55.5 years. Only about 12% of the Chinese population are 55 or over. In a later study, the median age was 59, and only about 10% of Chinese are this age or older. In the last of three time periods of this study, the median age had crept up to 61. Combine old age, pre-existing health conditions, pneumonia, powerful drugs, other medical procedures, and you have a recipe for another iatrogenic disaster. These drugs are sometimes described as experimental, but that is a misnomer and disguises the fact that they are not used in the context of science. It is clearly not science when there's no placebo, no blinding, no randomization. It's likely that sicker patients will be more likely to be prescribed the untested drugs and the sickest patients will be prescribed the most potent of the untested drugs. If they have a health decline or they die, it will be blamed on the virus. And nobody could know what would have happened if they had received standard medical treatment for their symptoms due to the lack of a worthwhile comparison. If the patient survives, 
it will likely be considered a success, even if the patient spends the rest of their life as um, disabled or as an invalid. And it could be worth millions or billions in public relations to an antiviral drug that has not yet found a, a market. And I think the Ebola drug remdesivir is a good example of that. It was tried in Africa, and for some reasons it wasn't uh, the preferred drug. So the manufacturer obviously wants to find a home for it, uh, recoup their investment. The coronavirus panic is just that, an irrational panic based on an unproven RNA test that has never been connected to a virus, and which won't be connected to a virus unless the virus is purified. Furthermore, even if the test can detect a novel virus, the presence of a virus is not proof that it is the cause of the severe symptoms that some people who test positive experience, but not all who test positive. Finally, even if the test can detect a virus, and even if the virus is dangerous, we do not know what the rate of false positives is. Even a 1% false positive rate could produce 100,000 false positives in a city the size of Wuhan, and could mean that a significant fraction of the positive test results that are being found are false positives. If you run tests and you get 3% of the tests positive and the false positive rate is 1%, then one out of three test results, positive test results are false positives and you don't know which ones. The use of powerful drugs because doctors are convinced that they have a particularly potent virus on their hands especially in older people and people with pre-existing health conditions, is likely to lead to many deaths, as it did with SARS. <clears throat> there is very little science happening. There is a rush to explain everything that is happening in a way that does not question the viral paradigm, does not question the meaningfulness of test results, and that promotes the use of untested antiviral drugs. Given enough time, there will be a vaccine developed, and for some of the traumatized countries it may become mandatory and universal, even if developed after the epidemic has disappeared, so that proving that it reduces the risk of developing a positive test, let alone illness, will be impossible. Time for a little feedback, <coughs> both on the coronavirus. I don't know if you remember, but I did a, a sort of a small episode on the coronavirus, which wasn't broadcast on PRN.FM, but I put the link in an earlier show. Um, so they were responding to that and some of the posts I've made on coronavirus. Heather via email wrote, I'm writing you because of this whole coronavirus thing here in the States. I wish I could have confidence in our medical system, but I don't. My experience with current health issues this past year, allergies and asthma and thyroid, with our medical system and now with the current outbreak, I just don't have faith. I live in the Seattle area where the measles outbreak occurred last year. I can tell you that healthcare has hit rock bottom. The doctors do not care about one's health history or symptoms. They keep relying on flawed testing or rig it against the patient so the insurance company does not have to pay for treatment. <clears throat> also, the quality of the medications is often awful. I don't know what kind of side effects I will get day to day. I'm constantly tired. One of Seattle's children's hospitals has a lawsuit over medical room mold killing kids. I've been told by doctors this year that I don't have allergy, I don't have allergies, and I don't have asthma. 
I wouldn't have said this 20 years ago, but the doctors are now in cahoots with the drug companies and insurance companies against patients. I remember all the other outbreaks, such as SARS, bird flu, etc. The coverage here is at its worst in years. No education or alternative voices on the air. It's mass hysteria in part created by news coverage. It's sickening. I hope in the future you can do another show just on this and then news coverage with some sanity. Well, your wish has become a reality. I just did it. Tom on Facebook wrote, Hey David, I enjoy your show. Given the new hysteria about the coronavirus, could you comment or update your remarks on February 10th? You're one of the few skeptical voices out there, and I thank you for that. Well, Tom and Heather, you got what you asked for, and I hope other people appreciate this. My aim is not to have you believe what I'm saying. My aim is to put information out there, to interpret it. And if you read the written version of this show, it contains all the references. So if you want to go read all the scientific reports, it's really not that difficult if you put some time aside. Read all the newspaper articles. And certainly if you find any errors in my interpretation, please let me know. My intention is not to mislead anybody. My intention is not to say, this is what I believe, you need to believe it too. My intention is to say, this is what I found, this is my analysis, I want you to think about it, check up on some aspects, check up on all aspects, and then make up your own mind. And I know, unfortunately, a lot of people won't do that, but I think my listeners are special, and a lot of you will think this through a lot better um, than the average person who believes what they see on the evening news on television. Thank you for listening to episode 246 of The Infectious Myth. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion for a future guest, please email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com, like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth, commit to monthly donations of any amount to infectiousmyth on patreon.com or liberapay.com. Until next week, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.